Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the New Testament lesson. This is the third letter of the risen Christ to the churches in Asia Minor. This one to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was the oldest city in Asia Minor. And it was uh, notable on a number of fronts. It had the second largest library in the ancient world. Over 200,000 volumes. Second only to the world famous library in Alexandria, Egypt. So it was a literate city. 200,000 volumes in a world where books are not printed, but written, is a lot of books. More importantly, it was the religious capital of the province. We've seen this throughout the series, this alliance between the cities and Rome. But if Ephesus was like the New York City of Asia Minor, Pergamum is like the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It's the place where pagan and empire worship and their symbols were the most prominent. They were prominent in other places, but they were very prominent in Pergamum. With respect to pagan religion, Pergamum had a massive altar to Zeus, who was a savior god. It had temples dedicated to Dionysius, who was the patron god of the dynasty. Temples dedicated to Athena, the goddess of victory, the patroness of the city of Pergamum. Had a big temple to the serpent god, Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And in connection with his, his cult, the healing arts flourished. And people, the city actually had an embryonic 
medical center and people would flock to Pergamum for cures, making it something like a, an ancient uh, Lourdes. And in addition to the, the pagan worship, there is, as we've seen again with the other cities, the imperial cult. And by that I mean the worship of the emperor and the empire. It flourished at Pergamum. It was the first city, and they did this about 29 or 30 AD, they erected a temple to a living emperor. Other cities would eventually erect temples to dead emperors. Pergamum, in 29 AD, had already erected a city, I mean a temple, to Caesar Augustus. Three times this city was named by Rome as the warden or the guardian of the imperial worship. And so, again, we have a situation in Pergamum where the pagan religious environment and primarily the imperial worship are exerting enormous pressure on the church on the ground to compromise. So we'll look at the text under five headings. I believe they're there in your outline. The address, faithfulness, compromise. The address, faithfulness, compromise. The call to repent. And the call to conquer. So first, first the address. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Almost always in these letters, the risen and transfigured Christ, in the address to the letter, he picks up on some feature of that grand vision that we saw of him in chapter 1. Remember that whole vision? Head, white, eyes, flaming fire, Feet of burnished bronze, voice like thunder, rolling waters, and a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He picks up on some feature of that vision of his transcendent glory, and he addresses the church as the one with that feature. And he does that here by saying, I am the one with the double-edged sword. And as you see in each of these letters, what, he, what Jesus focuses in on about his own glory is very relevant to this church on the ground. And so, the sword was a symbol of Roman justice. It's a symbol of Roman military might. And more locally, it was the symbol of the Roman proconsul, sort of the governor, the local official in Asia, who happened to dwell in Pergamum. And so the sword indicates total sovereignty, rule. The sovereignty of the empire over life and death. However, as possessed by the risen Christ, the sword is an image of the word of God. It refers back through chapter 1 of Revelation to Isaiah 11 which was our Old Testament lesson today. And Isaiah 49, where the Messiah's mouth is depicted as a sharp, 
double-edged sword. And it refers forward to Revelation 19 where Christ comes forth riding on a white horse as the Word of God with a sharp sword in His mouth for judgment. And here, the sword is the Word of God primarily wielded for judgment. And so the point at the outset is simple and it's clear. The judging sword of Christ is more powerful than the coercive sword of Rome. This is a perpetual theme in Revelation. Jesus, not the empire. And here, this sword stands ready to judge the church. We should not miss this point that these seven messages to the churches coming as they do at the beginning of the book before these judgments are unleashed on the unbelieving world later in the book that these messages enshrine a critical principle and that principle is this judgment begins with the house of God it always begins with us And so, this is something of an edgy point that Jesus is making. The church which attempts by compromise to avoid the Roman sword shall face the sword of the radiant Christ. That's the address. The second thing is faithfulness. And here, this Christ knows three things about this church. He knows the pagan culture in which they live. I know where you live or where you dwell. And Pergamum, he says, is Satan's throne, his special habitation. Again, this is probably a reference to the, to the empire worship, the imperial worship. Behind the throne of the empire, here's a politically incorrect thought if you're an ancient first century Roman citizen. Behind the Roman Empire is Satan himself. Your government is demonic. I know where you live, Pergamum, city of great patriotism and great chest-thumping pride about the empire and its achievements. But behind the empire and all its achievements and the Roman Empire's achievements are legions. Nevertheless, John discerns a satanic power and principality behind this vast achievement of the empire. And the second thing Christ knows is their faithful witness. He says, you hold fast the name of Jesus. The glorious name of Jesus as the manifestation of Yahweh. This is intimately related to the new name that they're promised in verse 17. You'll notice that. At the beginning, Jesus says, you hold on to my name. At the end, he says, I'm going to give you a name. And so it entails the fact that this church, in an environment where everybody loves the empire, and where there's a lot of compromise, this church has upheld their new identity in Christ. They've resisted the lure of identity formation 
which the pagan world holds before them. This is a big thing in our culture, right? Everybody believes they're fashioning and forming their own identity. We're obsessed with it. And what the Christian faith says is your identity is formed in your baptism. It is formed outside of yourself in Jesus Christ and together with his church in the body of Christ. Your confession of Jesus and your relationship to one another is the the formative thing, the basic thing about your identity as a human being. And it subordinates all other identity stuff. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, the sacrifice of selfish privacy which is daily demanded of us he's speaking about in the life of the church, is daily repaid a hundredfold in the true growth of personality which the life of the body encourages. Those who are members of one another become as diverse as the hand and the ear. That is why the worldlings are so monotonously alike compared with the fantastic variety of the saints. Obedience is the road to freedom. Humility, the road to pleasure. Unity, the road to personality. We have so much identity formation. And at the same time, so much tedious monotony. So much predictable, flat, one-dimensional grayness. It turns out that if you want to form your own identity, it's going to be very predictable. And so, how does a person develop what Lewis here calls a fullness of personality? Because we all tend to have narrow personalities, and the life of the body of Christ cracks us open to other people, and to the differences, and the uniquenesses, and to dealing with people we wouldn't naturally want to deal with. And what that does is that produces a Catholicity, a largeness of personality. But you don't get that in the monotonous identity formation in the world where you have the worst combination of both radical individualism and mass conformity at the same time. But I digress. You are to hold fast to the name of Jesus and that will give you the richest form of identity. And the risen Christ also knows that they've refused, the text says, to to renounce or deny the faith. They've publicly upheld the gospel in the face of opposition. And Christ knows their faithfulness. Notice the word even in verse 13. Even in the days of Antipas. We don't know who this early, very early Christian martyr was. Or even how he died. But Christ knows him. And he knows him by name. Isn't that interesting? Imagine the risen, transcendent Jesus Christ appearing here and picking a few people out by name. That's what's going on in this letter. And the name Antipas is a name which happens to mean, fittingly, against all. Just like Athanasius in the 4th century became known as Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the whole world. Antipas. Against all. And Christ heaps on this one man the highest honor he bestows in the book of Revelation. He calls him a faithful witness. 
which is what Jesus is called in the opening greeting of the book in Revelation chapter 1. And he calls him a faithful witness with great personal affection. He calls him in the text, my faithful witness. And as with Christ, Antipas's witness was witness unto death. So apparently, at this time in Pergamum, there was one, and only one, martyr. But during this time, this would be a, terror, a time of terror for this church. They've endured. They've not denied the faith. We should note here that there are real casualties in this warfare. The beast, later in the book of Revelation, this is remarkable. Later in the book, the beast will be given power to war against the saints and, the text will say, to conquer them. Imagine that. So, in addition to redefining what Christian victory looks like, which is one of the great functions of Revelation, what does it look like to be a victorious Christian? Well, it looks like a mutilated, naked man hanging on a cross. That's what it looks like. In addition to that, Revelation has another function. It reminds us of what we're promised and what we're not promised. And we are not promised that anti-Christian powers won't kill us. That we will not suffer at their hands. The whole book, like the whole of the church's history, is drenched in blood. And the blood keeps rising. It's rising in Syria. It's rising in Iraq. It's rising in a dozen or 18 or 20 some countries now. If you haven't read the work of Nina Shea on this, who's been documenting the worldwide ongoing persecution of Christians around the world, with a, with a kind of eloquence and ferocity, you should read it. She wrote a book called Persecuted just a couple years ago, but you can find all of her columns online. She's trying to get the attention of anyone who will listen. What we are promised is this, that even if they kill us, they can do us no permanent harm. That's the great promise of the book of Revelation. So the third point then here is compromise. Ironically enough, and it's puzzling, a faithful church is nevertheless allowing heresy to flourish in its midst. So facing the external world, they're valiant and stalwart, but internally this church is actually compromised. Churches are complicated, just like people are complicated. Some of them, verse 14 says, hold the teaching of Balaam instead of holding to Christ's name. You all know the story of Balaam from, from, from the book of Numbers, an Old Testament prophet. He was supposed to curse Israel. And he seduces Israelites into uh, immorality with the women of Moab and into idolatry by worshiping Baal. 
The point here is not that some in this church are, are following a long dead prophet. That's not the point. Rather, what Christ is doing is he's drawing a correspondence, an analogy between what Balaam taught and what some in this church are now teaching. Balaam enticed Israel. He led them into apostasy. In the same way, these teachers are doing that at Pergamum. And there are two areas of concern here. We'll see this over and over again. Uh, this will become very clear in the book of Revelation. The two areas, and they're, they're really one area, but it's expressed in, in, with a twofold term. Basically, idolatry and immorality. Those are the two concerns of all, in all the churches and throughout the whole book of Revelation. So let's take idolatry first. In this, in this text, it says eating food sacrificed to idols. But this cannot refer to just marketplace food, which may have previously been used in a pagan temple. Because Paul permits that in 1 Corinthians. Remember that? Paul says, yeah, don't worry about where the food was offered. Just eat it. What is in view here is participation in the actual worship of the city. Either in the public acknowledgement of Caesar as Lord, or in some form of participation in the, in the pagan cults, which were tied into the civic life of the, of the city. So what is almost certainly going on in Pergamum is something like this. And it's a phenomenon, by the way, that we've seen in the churches in the 20th century. There are some there that are arguing, hey, look, there's nothing wrong with participating in the imperial cult. There's nothing wrong with a little empire. Where, what are you not? Do you not love America? What's wrong with you? Are you not patriotic? What, you're not going to go to the, emperor's, the empire shrines and pay homage? After all, most folks do this out of a civic duty. Which was true, not as actual worship. It's not actual worship. It's just civic pride. Get over yourself. It could be viewed as an empty gesture, maybe a form of social patriotism. Something we know, which we all don't believe. Even the emperors don't believe they're divine. Nobody takes this Roman Worship in the provinces very seriously. By the way, there's a lot of plausibility to this argument. Right? Scholars of the, of the early Roman Empire will tell you, ah, nobody took this stuff seriously. Even the empire didn't take it seriously at first. We don't really believe this in our hearts. So burn a little incense and stop being so self-righteous. Get off your high horse. So you have to beware of rationalizations which say that what you do with your body and what you say with your mouth doesn't matter. It's what's in your heart that counts. We have to concretely extricate ourselves from the idolatrous claims of empires then and now. Now, we may not always agree on what that means, but we have to do it. And the second concern of immorality is essentially equivalent because in Scripture, idolatry is viewed as spiritual fornication with false gods. So this idolatry concern means you're polluting 
you church in Pergamum, you're polluting your worship of God with the worship of your country or your region or your nation or some other institution or the claims of the Roman Empire. And that's a kind of fornicating spiritually. It doesn't preclude actual immorality because there was perhaps, or in many cases, immorality involved with these pagan cults. So these are the two things which always come back to the church under empires. And under the empire of American messianic statist pretensions, the empire of perverted freedom, the empire of consumer greed and materialism, These things are still alive and well, and they're still deadly. So verse 15 says, they also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Probably the same identical group as the Balaamites. Christ hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans, he told the Ephesian church, which was opposing it. This church tolerates it. And so you have a situation in the church where there's a wayward minority, but there appears to be a kind of nonchalance in the majority about it. And they're both being rebuked here. So let's go to the fourth point where where the Lord finally calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. Balaam, you, you might remember, was threatened with the sword of the angel of the Lord. It's another reason why the sword is evoked at the the address here. And and, and Joshua and Numbers record that Balaam did die by the sword in battle. And so this call to repentance is essentially saying something like, these false teachers in your midst will suffer a similar fate as Balaam, only this time from Christ's terrible swift sword, if the church doesn't repent. Notice in verse 16, Christ says, I will come to you, to the whole church. So this is not something where you can say, oh, that's their problem over there. Those those eight people, they're following the teaching of Balaam. But the rest of us are pretty steadfast. Christ says in verse 16, I'll come to you, to the whole church, and I'll fight against them, the false teachers. So the Nicolaitans are the focus, but the whole church is guilty. Because Christ is going to come to this church. If they had been steadfast on this front, there would have been fewer defections. We are our brother's keeper in the body of Christ. To tolerate false teaching is a form of disdain for your brethren who may be trapped in the error. I get it. We all hate the self-appointed guardian of doctrine. (laughs) Right? The person who's always going to tell you what the truth is about everything. But the other side of that error is to simply tolerate a whole range of bizarre teaching. That's a a failure to love. And it exposes the church to judgment. And, And so what would repentance mean here? Well, it means turning away from a false spirit of toleration. Turning against the false teaching and dealing with it. Otherwise, Christ says, I'm going to come and deal with it. And his coming here is not his coming at the end of the age. This is a historical coming. He says, I'm going to come to this church. I'm going to deal with this church and I'll take care of these people. 
So here when he says, I'm coming soon, he means soon. So the final point then, the call to conquer. Two gifts are promised to the church that holds fast to Jesus' name and doesn't tolerate false teaching. That isn't corrupted by the empire. One is the manna and the other one is the white stone with a new name on it. These are both references, both references to our coming communion with Christ at the messianic banquet in the everlasting kingdom. Because that feast displaces all of the idolatrous and all of the immoral pagan feasts. Among the other things that the supper does is it displaces all other pagan feasting. And so let me fill this out a little. The first gift is I will give you some of the hidden manna. The tradition is a fascinating tradition. This Jewish tradition held that Jeremiah had taken the ark with the manna in it to Egypt before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And some taught that in the coming kingdom, when the Messiah would appear, he would place the ark in the new temple, serving a feast of the manna which had been hidden for centuries. Some versions of this tradition even had Jeremiah reappearing. And while this story could, it could be in the background here, there are biblical sources closer at hand. Right? Manna, of course, was a part of Israel's wilderness sojourn. And we will come to see that in the book of Revelation, the church is definitely depicted as living in a wilderness situation analogous to Israel's. So Israel gets manna in the wilderness, and in the fullness of time, Jesus comes, and what does he say? He claims to be the true manna from heaven. And so this manna here is hidden in Jesus Christ, and it's given in its fullness, fullness of communion, fullness of life, fullness of blessing to us at the end. And so essentially what the overcomers are promised is communion with Christ at his feast in the kingdom. By the way, I'll, I'll make this point as an aside now. All the promises to those who conquer in all seven letters are essentially that in one form or another. If you get that point, you will have grasped a good deal about it. Are, there's all sorts of things promised. Thrones, crowns, names, stones... But, but they reduce to this. They are, they, are the, the, they are John's way in the spirit of encouraging you to see the, the coming glorious everlasting kingdom feast in Jesus Christ and to be there. To not be subverted. And the second gift here is the white stone. In, in the Roman Empire, as, as a legal um, feature, judges would use a white stone, either show it or give it to the accused, as a token of vindication. So if you were on trial and you saw a white stone, it meant you were vindicated. If you saw a black stone, the verdict was condemnation or guilty. And so 
What's hap- this idea is being used by Christ to say Christians condemned by the Roman courts shall be vindicated at God's bar. They may give you a black stone. They have killed Antipas. They may continue to kill you. But I will give you a white stone because I have the, the, the sharp sword in my mouth and I'm the judge of heaven and earth. And closely related to this fact is that contestants in the Greek games were given a stone at the end of the race. And you could take the stone and you could either trade it for actual rewards, believe it or not, or you could use it for admission to certain functions like feasts in the temples. So there's two images with this stone here, this white stone. One is legal vindication, and the other is an entrance pass, which suggests that the white stone grants admission to the messianic feast. And there's one more matter to discuss before we close. Notice that on the stone is a new name which no one but the recipient knows. To know a name means to, in this context, it means to possess it and its characteristics. And the name throughout the book of Revelation, which is placed on believers, is the name of God and of Christ which we, each in our own unique way, will come to appropriate. So the name, then, is essentially genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which there's no entrance into the city of God or to the messianic feast. So what's the new name? Well, it is our transformed identity in Christ. At the beginning, the church said, you've held on to my name. You have not renounced the faith. You have formed your identity through baptism, through faith, through union with Christ, through through life in the body of Christ. You are named. Your fundamental identity, your bearing in life is taken from that. Well, I'm going to give you this transformed identity in fullness and in glory in Christ. And while you possess it now, Revelation 3.12 says Christ will give future to the conqueror's the name of my God. And at the end of the book, the saints shall see his face, the text says, and they shall have his name on their foreheads. Christ names you. You cling to his name, and in clinging to a name that's not yours, you find your fullest identity. For now, we are destined to be married to the Lord, to take his name, each in our own unique way. That's what it means when it says nobody knows the name. It doesn't mean everyone's going to get a little secret password name and be asking each other, hey, what's your name? Right? It means the the name of Jesus as appropriated by each of us is appropriated in a unique way. So, The book of Revelation is asking you to do a couple things. And they're not easy. One is you have to prophetically, discerningly identify the claws of the American empire. And resist them where they demand total allegiance. This is not an easy task. It requires humility. 
We could be mistaken. But we also need to repent here, notice in this text, of a kind of false tolerance. This has been incredibly destructive for churches in the 20th century. It it may not be an enormous problem here or in our circles, but think of what doing two things, panting like dogs to catch up with the culture and conform to it, and tolerating false teaching has done to mainline Protestant churches in the 20th century. It's emptied them out. It's eviscerated them. It's made them useless. You know what's happened to them? Christ has come against him with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And there, that's just now impotent and splattered all over the side of the road. Nobody needs a church that's just going to tell it what the culture already tells it. What do you need that for? That's why we have NBC. Right? You don't need a church that's going to breathlessly conform to every new fad. And so, while we can't be pompous about this or self-righteous, we cannot have this kind of false tolerance, which, in, which at the end of the day is not really much tolerance at all, but I think you know what I mean. We have to flee this because it's a kind of fornication. And you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You have a wedding feast to attend. Don't let anyone defraud you of your gifts. Amen.